Jan, good morning. Oh, thank you. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. Time to turn up the microphone or start yelling. Good morning. Oh, thank you. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for April 22nd, 2015. Boy, the volume works. Um, it is Earth Day today. It is uh, Administrative Professionals Day, which I think is important to recognize. Um, the, our administrative colleagues, um, among other things, help make sure that we have this room and this space and have Grand Rounds every week. Sharon is not here, but should be thanked for her and Eleni's efforts in bringing these speakers, helping us bring these speakers to town and getting them ready. Uh, all of us who are in practices know that uh, the secretaries, the administrative folks are the, are the face and frontline ears and eyes of our practices, um, have a thankless job. You know, we sometimes hear grief from our patient families. I think they often hear grief from our patient families and, and most often handle it with grace and keep our patient families our patient families. So. I know there's some nice food upstairs on 6L and 6M for them today, but uh, I think thanks are in order, and not that I see many of them in the room today um, when you go by. An extra special thanks for all of their efforts. Uh, we will continue with our Grand Round series. We are in the midst of our uh, graduating residents. Next week we have a break from that. Dr. Ron Karen will join us from uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia to talk about building a quality improvement program to uh, advance high value. And I think that will be right up our alley. But today we are welcoming uh, Bridget Olivieri to our podium as our Grand Round speaker for the day. Uh, Bridget is, as I said about um, Dr. Gladstone a couple weeks ago, a native New Yorker who we somehow uh, swung up to the Upper Valley, to the hinterlands of Dartmouth after graduating with a Bachelor of Arts cum laude from New York University and spending time with visiting master's level coursework in psychology in Dublin, Ireland, completed her medical school at New York Medical College with a trustee scholarship and a prize winner from the Medical Student Research Forum in Basic Science Activity. I think um, we know Bridget well, but I think we know her to be quietly competent and, and maybe quiet, but she already has uh, five publications, uh, peer-reviewed and abstract presentations from her work. And uh, I think we've increasingly seen a humorous side of, of Bridget this year. She was a contributor to New York Medical College's satirical student publication. And I didn't know she appeared on NPR's Ask Me Another just last November as a contestant. So I think all of those in some way will put her in good stead as she continues on as our chief resident in 2015-2016. Please give us some feedback on Bridget's uh, presentation, which I know will be great. Come on up, Bridget. First things, can everybody hear me? since we've spent a good time of elaborating on how quiet I am. Um, so after a number of really interesting grand rounds over the last uh, few years that I've been here as a resident, um, most recently, uh, Dr. Class and her um, work with Reach Out and Read and some great public uh, grand rounds about uh, school health as well, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the new research coming out um, on the economic side of early childhood education um, and the investment there. Okay. 
Um, so some housekeeping things first. We can hear me. Um, some disclosures. Um, I don't have any off-label uses of education to discuss, whatever that would be. Um, I have no financial relationships to disclose either, um, although I know some student loan companies that would be interested in finding out how to make that happen. Um, and we are going to try to use some technology with this presentation today, so we're going to just try to make sure it works, because whenever you get the internet involved into these things, things can go awry. So we'll do some testing. Um, for those of you who have your phones or tablets or computers or what have you, uh, we're going to be doing some audience participation that relies on uh, going to a website. Um, so we'll give it a shot. Uh, the web address is polev, dot, uh, short for polleverywhere.com. Uh, you can use uh, the after the backslash my name is the way to get in. Um, even if you have a dumb phone, you can text a response um, to some of the quizzes that we'll be doing. Um, some uh, caveats there, just like American Idol, if you pay for your text messages, you have to pay for this one too. Um, I won't be having access to your number. I'm not going to spam you with crazy text messages. And from what I know about this company, they won't either. All right, so we'll give it a shot. So how's everybody feeling this morning? Um, if you go to this website, there should be, yay, it should work, yay. Um, and you should be able to put in some free text responses to get a word cloud. So we'll give everybody a couple of <laughs> seconds to make this happen. A lot of greats, that's good. I'm feeling you on the tired. <laughs> All right. Anybody having issues with making the app work if it's something you want to try to do? <laughs> OMG. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to close it. I'm fine, cool. All right, so we'll move on, but there'll be more opportunities for fun. All right, so the points of this talk, um, I'm going to be talking about, obviously, early childhood education, and we'll do a brief tour about what that's looked like in recent history. Um, I'm going to be going over some evidence for improved outcome from children who get to have this experience, um, both in the cognitive academic realms, which is sort of the obvious place to look, um, as well as social economic outcomes and health outcomes, because we all care about children's health here. Um, and we'll do a brief overview of some of the current initiatives to expand access to these services and funding for them. Um, so we'll start with the current situation. Um, parents are spending more time interacting with their children over the last 50 years, which is great. Um, parents who uh, have higher education and higher incomes, uh, when we look at the numbers, are doing this more than parents who do not. Um, the same time, parents are spending more time working uh, We've noticed an increase in how much time moms alone spend time working, and also an increase in the number of households that have all parents working over the last 50 years as well. Um, so since we don't actually have a way to add more hours to each day, um, these two things come in conflict a lot. Um, and over the last 50 years, parents are reporting more instances of work-family conflict, where you just can't be in two places at once wanting to be. Um, and this is actually becoming uh, has risen even more dramatically in the male population. Um, so who's actually watching the preschoolers? Um, so nationally, looking at uh, census data from 2008, uh, it's pretty evenly split across uh, about a quarter of preschoolers who are in a relative's care. One in five of those was in the care of a grandparent during the day. Uh, about a quarter of kids are in organized childcare, daycare facilities. A quarter of kids are home uh, with parents, and then about another quarter are in other situations. Um, so about half of kids uh, nationally are in 
uh, family-based childcare. Um, over the last 15 years, uh, with uh, the advent of state-funded preschool, um, we've been seeing more three- and four-year-olds enrolled in such programs, um, with more um, substantial increases in the four-year-old population. Uh, meanwhile, average state spending per child, as we've had more kids enrolled, has gone down. So in 2013 dollars, that's gone from about $5,000 per child um, to $4,000 per child um, over that period of time. Uh, as far as how many four-year-olds are in state pre-K across the country, super variable. Um, and even within our little neck of the woods, uh, you see both ends of the spectrum pretty clearly, um, as, as you guys in your communities are probably well aware. Um, so for uh, Vermont, uh, upwards of 61% of four-year-olds are in a state-funded pre-K. New Hampshire is one of 10 states in the country that does not have a state-funded preschool program. Um, but it's pretty variable across the country. Um, so what do things look like specifically in Vermont um, as far as three and four year olds enrolled in preschool education? Uh, there are two programs by which uh, state preschools get funded. Uh, the one large percentage of uh, these programs, uh, a larger for four year olds and three year olds, uh, is from the Act 62, the um, preschool act that was passed in 2007, I believe. Um, that provided state funding uh, for school districts. Uh, there's another smaller sliver of funding um, that are competitive grants uh, to fund preschools. And then smaller percentages of kids are in Head Start programs, which we'll talk about a little bit more, um, special education programs, and other programs. In New Hampshire, given the absence of state-funded preschool, uh, most are in other childcare and uh, preschool arrangements. So 88% of four-year-olds uh, with 5% uh, in Head Start and 7% in special education programs. Um, so given this big giant other category, what does other actually look like? Um, so in a 2014 survey of licensed childcare uh, programs in New Hampshire, uh, this is what the distribution looked like. So about half of kids are in a childcare center. Um, this also includes school-age children as well, um, who are in some school-age focused childcare. There are two different kinds of family childcare centers listed here that are differentiated basically by size. Um, so the bright yellow color are um, family childcare centers with about six to 10 children. Um, the green color is family childcare centers that are slightly bigger. Um, there are about 10% of kids uh, in this age, about four years old, um, who are in nursery school preschools, um, and a smaller sliver of kids who are in Montessori programs and other programs. Um, so more audience participation. For those of you who have kids, you may be very well aware of this number, but what do you think the average annual cost of full-time childcare in a center in New Hampshire would be? Um, so if you can get to the website and if it works, Try to text in one of these letters. We'll give you guys a few minutes to respond. I notice nobody's really going for the cheap side. <laughs> All right, um, so moving on. <laughs> this stuff is really expensive, as many of you guys know. Um, so for those of you who thought that you were paying more than the national average for childcare in New Hampshire, you are. 
Um, for those who picked D are correct uh, in that uh, the average annual cost of full-time childcare for a four-year-old in New Hampshire in 2011 was uh, $9,500, slightly less in Vermont, uh, but still a whole lot of money. Um, and it's been getting more expensive over the last 20, 30 years or so. Um, so adjusted for inflation, uh, the weekly average childcare cost for families with working moms has gone from $84 to $143. Um, and this costs more for younger kids. Uh, now for families who have single moms or otherwise um, more uh, cash strapped, this ends up being a large percentage of your annual median income. So for a single, median single mother family's income, this makes up about a third uh, of your median income. Uh, for other, the average median household, uh, it ends up being a smaller percentage. Um, for those of you in the uh, Dartmouth daycare program, if you're a current PGY3, this ends up being about, uh, if you're a one salaried uh, family, this ends up being about 18.5% of your annual salary. Um, if you have two salaries, since it's a sliding scale, it ends up being about 15%. So it's a whole bunch of money. Um, here at home, uh, this is just going over how many children are um, in three to five-year-olds are in preschool or kindergarten. Um, so we're doing pretty well there. Um, a smaller percentage of three to four-year-olds are in preschools. So how do we get to this point? Um, so this is an illustration of uh, one of the gods of medicine, Escalpus, observing a childcare scene, which for some reason is a little bit anachronistic. This looks like sort of 1700s-ish, and this is clearly before then. Um, but people involved in healthcare have been overseeing, involved in childcare from the beginning, from what we can tell from this. Um, and people have had strong thoughts through the ages. Um, so we can start a little bit with Plato. I promise we won't go, go through all of history. Um, but Plato had strong thoughts that he outlined in The Laws and the Republic, um, that children's education needs to be placed in the hand of skills trainer, skilled trainers and guardians whose task it is to ultimately make them guardians of themselves. Um, and he was pretty keen in observing that of all wild things, a child is hardest to handle. Um, <laughs> so we have to give him props there. Um, and actually advocated for structured play um, as a way of getting children to learn because compelling to chil children to learn is impossible. Um, also for us girls in the room, he was a big fan of educating both boys and girls um, because as he put it, otherwise your city is half a city and becomes only half of what it might be. Skipping forward a whole bunch to the 1830s um, in Germany, um, Froebel brought about uh, kindergartens. Um, and as far as the structure of those programs, let, let me know if this sounds familiar, but about two to three hours a day for children, um, sort of preschool age. Uh, the day started with circle time and then went into songs and finger playing, uh, some guided play with educational toys, some outside play. Does that sound anything, any different than anything you guys experienced in preschool or your kids do? Not so much from what I was seeing. Um, with the uh, onset of the Industrial Revolution, uh, we had more day nurseries. Um, so programs that were childcare focused for uh, women who were entering the workforce to give them places to, for their kids to be watched. Um, there are a couple of programs that I found that were founded with physician input. Um, so around this same time um, in England in the turn of the century, the Macmillan Nursery Schools were founded uh, by a physician who was concerned by both the lack of labor regulation for women and children, as well as abysmal health conditions. Kids were in pretty rough conditions, so started this nursery school with that in mind. 
the Montessori method was likewise founded by a physician in Italy who focused initially on development for the quote-unquote feeble-minded, um, although it wasn't actually described what that meant very clearly um, in terms of what criteria you had to meet to get in, um, but subsequently founded the Casa del Bambini for self-directed learning um, in tenements in San Lorenzo. Uh, the Bureau of Educational Experiments, uh, which sounds kind of a little bit science experimenty, but isn't, um, came about in New York City, likewise at the turn of the century in about 1916 or so, um, as part of the progressive movement um, and provided a way for people to actually study um, preschool um, as a way to sort of lift up the lower classes. Um, a nursery school explicitly was founded in 1919 um, this is now part of the Bank Street College of Education, which still exists in the city. Um, Dewey, who is famous, is also involved in the progressive movement. Um, and then subsequently, for economic uh, reasons, during the New Deal, FDR started the, uh, as part of the WPA, emergency nursery schools, which were not exactly an emergency for children to get care, but more an emergency for teachers to get work. Um, and as part of uh, welfare reform, uh, we've had a a need for childcare and a requirement actually to, for working moms to have childcare as well. Uh, so that brings us to Head Start, which was started 50 years ago in 1965. Um, this comes about historically in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination in the early civil rights movement um, and as part of Lyndon Baines Johnson's Great Society Initiative and part of the War on Poverty. Um, this initially started as a very brief eight week summer school readiness program uh, that was modeled actually on a community initiative uh, in African-American communities to get their kids ready for entering kindergarten in newly desegregated schools. This was wildly popular, worked really well, and within the course of a year, the very next year was already expanded to a nine-month part-day program. Um, and expanded over the next few years, I'll have to plug Sesame Street, which was actually founded, um, or funded rather, uh, with Head Start grant money. Um, so thanks there. Um, there was a new focus on disabilities in the 70s uh, that required 10% of Head Start funding, or rather 10% of enrollees to uh, have disability services. In 1994, the program expanded to include early Head Start to children under three. Um, and in 1998, uh, there were further expansions for, to provide full day, full year programs for Head Start. Um, at the current moment, the program objectives for Head Start are manyfold. They're to enhance children's growth and development, to strengthen families as the primary nurturers of their children, to provide children with educational health and nutritional services, so all around there, um, to link children and families to needed community services, and to ensure well-managed programs that involve parents in the decision-making there. So lofty goals. All right, so another interactive component uh, another free text thing. Uh, what does quality early education look like? What do you guys think? What are some um, adjectives that you think might describe that? Let me know if it's not working. All right, so we've got some good stuff. So teachers help child-focused, play involved in learning, supportive is a good one. <laughs> Lots of interaction. I see a lot of supportive. That's great. <laughs> Is there a goose on there? Yeah. So <laughs> just making sure we have both sides of the equation.
<laughs> I'm glad I'm involved somehow. That's good. <laughs> All right, so moving on. Sorry, this is a lot of fun. I want to stay here to see what you guys think. Um, so moving on, as far as what uh, the research supports, uh, quality early childhood education has a curriculum of some sort, um, obviously. Uh, some focus on cognitive skills like math and reading. The uh, logic there is that this is where the gaps are largest for low-income kids when they enter school. Um, another school of thought is that non-cognitive skills are what's most important, those social and behavioral skills. Um, and some theorists think, uh, based on their research, that this is what drives later in life improvements um, in their outcomes. Uh, obviously, the best programs would have a little bit of both. Um, as far as the duration, research supports that full-day programs uh, are more effective in boosting learning um, and are most helpful to ensuring parental stable employment. Um, and another factor in uh, good quality early childhood education is focusing on teacher quality and further professional development. Um, so making sure that teachers are trained in early childhood education in particular, <clears throat> whether um, as uh, bachelor level um, qualifications or with specific early childhood training. Um, and the coaching literature is becoming really big in this region as well. Um, as far as how we sort of quantify those, uh, the research looks at what they call regulable features, so things that can be quantified and potentially regulated, things like class size, student-teacher ratios, um, and sort of funding type things, uh, as well as process features, so the more intangible but observable things. There are certainly uh, research scales that are meant to codify some of these things, um, but it's a little bit harder to talk about. But the good news is that um, the positive regulable features are correlated with the positive process or intangible features um, so that they do go hand in hand most of the, most of the time. Um, so moving on to talk a little bit about the research and outcomes in this field. Um, I'll start by talking about some model programs um, and where they are uh, showing the research going, and then talk about academic outcomes, economic outcomes, um, and health outcomes. So I'm going to start by talking about two programs that were both um, initiated in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and I highlight these programs because although they're small um, sample sizes, uh, they have great study design in that they're randomized controlled trials. Um, and they have a lot of follow-up data. So at this point, kids who were in these programs are 30 and 40 years old, have minimal attrition in these studies, um, and have given us a lot of good data. Um, so this first program that I'm going to talk about uh, was the Carolina ABC Darien uh, program that was around in 1972 to 1985. Um, and this involved randomizing 57 treatment subjects and 54 controls from birth. Um, so an early start there. Um, and focused on center-based childcare as the intervention that emphasized language development. As far as the specifics of this program, uh, it ran eight hours a day, five days a week, 50 days a year through age five. So a lot of services there. Um, there's a later arm that randomized older kids entering kindergarten and early elementary school um, with a homeschool resource, resource teacher who was meant to be like a community liaison. Um, and these kids have actually been followed through age 30, um, which is pretty impressive. Um, so I'll talk about the specific outcomes in later slides, but I wanted to set the stage with this program. Uh, the second program that I'm going to talk about is the Perry Preschool Project, which is alliterative and a bit of a tongue twister, um, but was run in the 1960s in Michigan. 
um, and randomized, again, 58 treatment subjects and 65 controls. These kids were randomized later at ages three and four for their intervention and were involved in a half-day preschool that ran every weekday as well as a weekly home visit component to work on sort of family dynamics and things like that. Um, all the teachers involved in this program, uh, similar to uh, the one previous, have advanced degrees in child development, so are well-trained. Um, and this program ran every weekday for eight months over the course of two years. And this followed subjects through age 40, um, so even more longitudinal data with pretty minimal attrition. So looking at some of the outcomes from these studies, um, as far as a meta-analysis of a whole bunch of studies of very varying sizes from the small sample sizes that we saw and the model um, interventions to some of the larger programs that look at Head Start enrollment with uh, ends of upward of 5,000. Um, so I looked at this 2013 paper uh, that was a meta-analysis of 84 studies that showed overall across all these studies, children who were involved in quality early childhood education had increased cognitive and achievement scores by an average of 0.35 of a standard deviation. Um, and why, while this sounds like not that much, this does actually account for half of the achievement gap, so half of the difference between black and white children um, on kindergarten entrance. Um, as far as specific outcomes, I'll focus on the Perry Preschool, uh, which has some of the most robust data um, and some of the, a little bit more clear to understand, but is fairly representative of the literature as a whole. Um, so children who were involved in the Perry Preschool ultimately had lower rates of utilization of special education versus the controls who did not receive that intervention. These kids had better grades in high school at age 14 by a lot. Um, and these kids were more likely to graduate on time from high school. Um, as far as a little bit more looking forward, uh, as far as IQ gains, uh, the IQ improvements were pretty dramatic um, on entry to age four and five and were sustained sort of in the early school years. Uh, but there's talk of this fade out effect where it kind of drops off and matches controls um, around age seven and is fairly indistinguishable by age 10, uh, which is fairly common through the literature actually. Um, in the ABC Darien program, these IQ gains were actually sustained into early adulthood. Um, and whether that's a reflective of a more intensive program, it's sort of hard to say, because these kids were randomized really early at, at birth um, and had a little bit more of an intensive intervention. Um, so that brings us to the Head Start Impact Study, uh, which got a lot of press as um, saying that Head Start doesn't work. But the research doesn't actually shake out that way, and I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, so this study looked at 5,000 newly eligible three and four year olds from 2002 to 2006. Um, and because we don't have a lot of funding for um, Head Start necessarily or as Head Start necessarily as much as we need, um, it enabled us to do a randomized control study. Um, so some of these children were randomized to Head Start. Some of them were randomized to do whatever they would have done in the absence of Head Start. So whether that's staying home with parents or in another community childcare setting. So 60% of those kids who weren't in Head Start were in another care setting. These kids were followed from enrollment at three and four to the spring of their first grade year. Um, the studies showed that kids in Head Start did get higher quality education than their counterparts in other programs. Um, these kids did develop better skills in language and literacy development while they were in the program. There's not really a big impact on math or free writing skills. Um, and these kids did display less hyperactivity and social emotional, and had better social emotional <laughs> skills. 
this effect is dose dependent. So kids who were enrolled at three were doing better um, in all of these regards. Um, although this did show fading effects uh, by first grade. Um, so the problem with this uh, research is that all of these kids who are enrolled in this program ultimately went on to attend pretty crummy schools. Um, so not a lot of sustained uh, intervention there. We all went on to attend schools with higher levels of poverty. Um, but what they did find was that improvements in social parenting skills um, in these kids were a lot more persistent than the cognitive IQ effects that everybody focuses on. Um, and as uh, we'll talk about a little bit in a little bit, that may be a more important thing to focus on than necessarily IQ gains. Um, so uh, one of the summarizers of this research had a quote that I liked that as far as interpreting this research, saying that Head Start doesn't work is kind of a bit like expecting that feeding a young child a nutritious diet will yield good health in the later years regardless of what you feed them afterwards, um, which is, I thought was a good way to look at this research. Um, so to put this in perspective, another study, uh, the child, uh, Chicago Child Parent Centers, uh, looked at an intervention that's fairly similar to Head Start, um, and in its history came out shortly afterwards as the second largest program like Head Start. And this looked at a large number of kids, so 989 experimental subjects with 550 controls in other child care centers. Um, these kids were enrolled in educational and parent support centers from age three through age nine, so supporting them in their early school years. Um, and it was very much like Head Start, but then with the improved education component afterwards. Um, these kids were followed into high school and beyond. Um, and looking at this intervention, so with the Head Start piece and with improved schooling afterwards, these kids had significantly higher levels of educational attainment. Um, so in terms of the highest grade level completed, they were um, significantly improved, uh, had higher rates of attendance at a four-year college. These kids had higher high school completion rates and were more likely to graduate high school on time. Um, so this, I think, is some of the more optimistic research in the academic and cognitive side of things for these kids. As far as the economics and other social outcomes, again, looking at the Perry Preschool data, uh, which is fairly, um, which is, again, more the robust data, Kids who were enrolled in the Perry Preschool were more likely to earn more than $2,000 monthly, so they made more money. They were more likely to own their own home, and they were less likely to be on welfare as an adult versus kids who were not enrolled in this program. Uh, They're also less likely to be in jail, uh, which is a good thing uh, just in general, but it's also a good thing because jail is really expensive um, to pay for from an economic perspective. Um, so they're less likely to have both felony and sort of misdemeanor and, and juvenile offenses if you were enrolled in the Perry Preschool. Um, data from the Chicago Child Parent Study also supports that kids who are enrolled in such an intervention are more likely to have better jobs, so more occupational prestige, a higher average annual income, and lower rates of, of justice system involvement, like we just saw. So lower rates of any arrest, any jail history, which is great. Um, and in the short term, in terms of providing childcare for working parents, um, if you have more affordable childcare available, it increases the rates of parental employment in terms of stimulating the economy, so that's a good thing. Uh, parents who are in the workforce are then more productive because they're not worried about where their children are, if they're in a good place, if their childcare is reliable. Um, they're generally happier with where their kids are when they're not there. 
Um, in some sense, kind of like the emergency WPA funded nursery schools, there's a limited amount of job creation that happens when you start um, early childhood education programs. So that's nice in the short term. Um, and then just looking at how we pay for raising our kids. Um, and this is uh, based entirely on my interpretation of 12th grade spring summer or spring semester AP economics. So it's not very sophisticated. Um, but because of economies of scale, childhood child care centers are more efficient at doing the things um, that parents are doing at home. So looking at our actual return on investment, where is the money and how do we get it? Um, so as calculated from Perry Preschool data by James Heckman, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, who uh, did some sort of further corrections and calculations that again are way more sophisticated than my level of understanding, but don't super matter for us. Um, the rate of return for investment for these for kids who are involved in this preschool um, is seven to ten percent per annum. So that's actually better than the stock market before it crashed, which is nice. Um, looking at how much money you're getting back for every one dollar spent, uh, these kids uh, bring eight dollars and change back into the economy over their lifetime, which is a great investment. Um, looking at other projects which don't have as robust economic analysis, but still have it there. Um, the ABC Darien project had more like a $3 uh, return on investment. The Chicago Child Parent Center has had an $11 return on investment. Um, and then Head Start recently looking solely at um, earnings has, it looks like a pretty uh, abysmal um, return on investment there, a dollar and change. Um, but this is actually just looking at earnings and not accounting for savings in terms of kids not going to jail, kids not being in special education. So looking just at one tiny factor of this whole picture, um, there's already a return on your investment there, which I think is pretty great. Some remediations uh, that are less effective to contrast this with, which our government throws a whole lot of money at, and may not actually be fixing a lot of problems effectively, we can contrast this with focusing on lower student-teacher ratios in high schools. Again, a good thing, but maybe not the first place to put our money. Uh, focusing on public job training, focusing on convict rehabilitation programs, adult literacy programs, and tuition subsidies. Not saying that these aren't good things. These are great, great things, obviously, but it's trying to fix a problem after it's already started. Um, and I think that a lot of us in this room are focused on preventive medicine in a lot of ways. And I think that going back to the beginning and preventing these problems is probably a more effective use of your money than uh, trying to fix them after they've happened. Um, and the economists would agree. Um, so looking at a graph of our return on investment, this is, uh, again, based on an equation that James Heckman came up with. Your axis here is looking at the rate of return on investment in human capital, so what we've been talking about, and breaks it down by different age groups. So focusing on the zero to three and four to five age groups is what I'm doing today. Um, and what this is trying to show is that your rate of return is a lot higher here than it is down here. And I feel like we're putting a lot of money here. Um, and I'd like to sort of contrast this or um, compare it rather with some of our data that we have on achievement gaps. Um, so this is looking at test scores just in terms of standard deviations for kids whose parents have incomes in the highest quartile and kids who have parent incomes in the lowest quartile. And during the stage, same age group that we're talking about, the zero to five uh, age group, 
is where these, this achievement gap really becomes the most pronounced. So if we can intervene here before we get here, um, I think uh, we have the most potential to make a difference. All right, but a lot of us in this room are doctors and nurses. So what about healthcare? Um, so looking at the ABC Darien study, uh, which actually had a focused nutrition and health intervention as well, um, these kids were uh, provided two meals and a snack at their child care center, which we hope most kids are, but these ones were studied. Um, they were also offered primary care access and um, access to uh, health care screenings. And as far as the health outcomes here, these are a lot of graphs. You don't need to know the details about them. That's why they're kind of itty bitty. Um, but what this is trying to show is looking at B the BMI distribution for kids who were treated, which is a solid line, and control kids who were not treated, which is a dashed line. Um, this is not all of the graphs that were there, so hard to believe, but this is simplified. Um, but looking at different points in time that these kids were in this intervention, from as early as three months to five years old, uh, there is a st statistically significant difference in uh, their BMIs. Um, so these kids were more likely to be in a healthy BMI range um, throughout the intervention. Um, so that's great because they're being fed at the um, preschool. So that makes sense intuitively. Um, but as far as what this looks like down the road for these kids when they're 30 years old, um, they're actually, uh, they have a lower prevalence of cardiovascular and metabolic risk factors. So they have a lower frame, Framingham risk score. They have lower rates of prediabetes, lower rates of abdominal obesity, and lower rates of dyslipidemia. They have less hypertension. There are actually no people in this study who were in the treatment group who had metabolic syndrome at all, versus a quarter of the people who were in the control group who did. Um, as far as access to care, uh, people who were in the ABC Darien Health Project uh, in childhood were more likely to have health insurance as adults. They were more likely to actually go to the doctor when they were sick, which is important. Um, and interestingly, a lot of this data correlates with uh, the differences in BMI at 12 months. So already at one year old, the seeds for all of these awesome things are planted. Health outcomes for um, other studies, and this is looking at uh, Head Start in particular. Kids involved in Head Start have improved access to dental care. They have improved child health, coverage, uh, child health in general and improved insurance coverage. Um, looking down the road, they have less incidence of substance abuse. Kids who are in Head Start um, or state-funded preschools are actually more likely to be vaccinated, which is a hot topic right now. Um, so looking in California, which has been in the news lately, um, for kids who are in either Head Start or state-funded preschools, um, they have a lot higher rates of vaccination, smaller percent unvaccinated um, than private preschools. So that works out well for not getting measles. Um, so looking at what the CDC has decided is important in terms of health indicators for what we want um, our population to look like in 2020, there's a lot of stuff on this slide. So there are 26 leading health indicators that the CDC has decided are important. Um, they focus on access to health services, focus on clinical preventive services, environmental quality, injury and violence, maternal, infant, and child health, mental health, nutrition, oral health reproductive and sexual health, social determinants, substance abuse, and tobacco use. All important things. 
Um, now, I've only been looking at this literature for a little bit, probably not as long as I should have been, given that this is my grand rounds, but anyway. Um, in terms of the things that I came across uh, in the research, they'll bold here. These are all outcomes that are addressed by research in early, child edu early childhood education um, and show improved outcomes. So kids involved in early childhood education, as we talked about already, are more likely to have medical insurance as adults. They're more likely to have a regular doctor. Um, as adults, they are more likely, if they're going to have hypertension, to have it controlled or less likely to have it overall, less likely to have diabetes, um, more likely to be fully vaccinated, um, less likely to have smoke exposure, fewer infant and child deaths. Um, they are uh, better at integrating physical activity into their lifestyles and have uh, lower risks of or lower rates of childhood and adult obesity, have better access to dentists, are more likely to graduate high school, which is a, a determinant of health, um, are less likely to have substance abuse with alcohol and drugs. Um, so I think this is kind of a big deal. Um, I don't know if you guys would agree, but that's what I was thinking, just making it a little bit more obvious what we were talking about. Um, so as far as take-home points uh, for uh, talks that I flew through a little bit this morning, um, early childhood education is both expensive to fund, pretty variable in quality across the board, and variable in its availability in the United States and in our own community. Uh, what a lot of the research shows, it tries to say that skill begets skill. So investing early and building skills early gives you more skills to then build on, and it's sort of um, goes around like that. Um, that being said, quality early childhood education is not a panacea. It's not going to fix everything. Um, so a lot of the literature cautions about saying that don't throw all your money at early childhood education if you're hoping to cure cancer or anything like that. However, I think it's a good start. Um, and if we consider this research just in this one domain in early childhood education, I think it can be um, extrapolated to a lot of other early childhood programs as well. Um, and I didn't talk about this morning uh, home visits and maternal child health programs. I didn't talk about early intervention in particular. I didn't talk about um, investment in children's health insurance programs. Um, but I think the same argument can pretty much be made, um, that investing early and preventing problems is a better economic use of your money um, than trying to fix a problem after it's happened. Um, so just a little motivation, guys. We kind of suck at this. <laughs> um, so the United States ranks 25th in the world in enrollment of four-year-olds in early learning experiences. Um, not to diss anybody else, um, but we are behind the Czech Republic, guys. <laughs> we're behind Korea. We're behind Germany. Um, we're behind a whole lot of places. We're behind Mexico, which is way up here, which is great for Mexico, but less good for us. <laughs> Um, so to touch very briefly on some of the current initiatives that are out there to try to get more money into these programs that work. Um, the Obama administration is really trying to push this preschool for everybody program, uh, both uh, in preschool development grants and in this race to the top early learning challenge um, that states are competing for, for grants for that. Um, not compulsory pre-K education, um, but just having the funding there and having the programs there for parents who want to take advantage of it. Um, the Heckman uh, Equation is a big website and a big program uh, led by uh, James Heckman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, who did a lot of this work. 
um, and is really trying to advocate for investment in human capital early. Um, Ready Nation is a sort of private and public partnership um, from the business side where businesses have recognized that investing in kids so we have competent workers down the line is probably a good idea. So that's where that program comes from. Too Small to Fail, where I shamelessly stole the title of my talk, uh, is an initiative uh, partnership with the Clinton Foundation uh, that focuses a little bit more on the word gap, but also on achievement gaps in between um, minorities and low-income families uh, and higher-income uh, non-minority families. Um, and I'm hopeful, um, as a pediatrician, that this is something that's going to get a little bit more press during this election cycle. Probably not, given how politics goes, but we can hope. Um, Spark New Hampshire is the um, snazzy name of the Early Childhood Advisory Council in New Hampshire put together by the governor here um, to try to find effective ways of um, funding early childhood development. And just a hint, we don't have a state preschool program, so we could start there maybe. Um, and as far as AEP programs go, uh, there's an early brain and childhood development sec uh, program um, that talks about a lot of the research that we are lucky enough to hear about this year um, in terms of adverse childhood experiences um, and early literacy and great stuff like that that I won't reiterate today. Um, so that's kind of all I have to talk to you about today. I kind of blew through my talk. Um, I wanted to thank Kathy and Kim for gently reminding me that I did need to do Grand Rounds and get a topic and put it together. Um, I wanted to thank Shashank for coming last night and helping me with the IT issues um, and my other um, awesome co-residents for putting up with my griping about doing Grand Rounds, even though we all have to do it. Um, I wanted to thank Ryan for coming this morning, my husband, and for being doubly the victim of a draft of this presentation and all my short household responsibilities over the last couple of weeks, um, and for the rest of my family for supporting me and taking a job that next year that's not exactly commutable to Queens. <laughs> um, so that's all I have to say this morning. Happy to try to answer some questions. I was curious to know a little bit more about the Chicago program because it seemed like that program focused not only just on the kids but on helping parents set expectations of their children mm -hmm. and I'd like for you to comment on that in the context of the, the fact that these educational programs that focus on children tend to the, the, the educational gains tend to dissipate over time mm -hmm. and whether kind of helping parents set higher expectations in terms mm -hmm. of education might might help kind of keep that from dissipating so much yeah so that's a good point that um, the programs that focused had either sort of a home visitation component or focused on actually building skills within the family were more effective in, in those kinds of things. Um, and as far as, uh, there are a lot of other studies that I kind of glossed over um, really quick here um, that did show what you were just talking about, that the programs that focused on building those skills within the family um, are really what contributed more to um, later success, not as measured in IQ gains, which may or may not be the best thing to measure, but measured in the outcomes that we talked about um, in terms of high school graduation, better jobs, and et cetera, down the line. Um, so overall, the research is uh, showing that programs that have a really strong teaching the family about ways to interact with their kids, um, the family uh, factors overall, regardless of 
all of these interventions, looking just at factors about families. Um, they're sort of the best predictors of how kids are going to do down the line. Um, so I think that's a great point to raise, that not just sort of plunking your kid down in a preschool, but sort of transferring those skills and transferring those experiences to things that can be continued and recreated at home um, are what's most likely to really contribute to later success. Well, thank you for doing a topic that's obviously near and dear to my heart. Um, I think, um, you know, putting funding into um, these early childhood programs, obviously, something um, that I think is really important. So I'm going to make a plug for all those people who live in Vermont, that there's um, a Vermont program called Let's Grow Kids. If you go to their website, it's www.letsgrowkids.org. Um, and they're really working on sort of this topic, both in terms of early childhood education and getting funding for more programs, but also the parent component and sort of figuring out what's the best way to help families um, with the interactions with their kids to provide this education. And so what they're looking for right now is for people to get onto the website and sign a pledge saying that you're in favor of this, because I think what they're trying to show is that there's strength in numbers, that there are a lot of people that think this is an important topic. <coughs> as we go back and actually Vermont does have a couple of great initiatives going on so one is that there's sort of funding for universal preschool uh, for each four 10 hours a week so kind of a bit of a drop in the bucket but it's a place to start um, and they're looking um, to start uh, uh, what's called a blue ribbon community to look a little bit more at funding for uh, early childhood um, programs mostly daycare programs which are really expensive particularly for younger kids um, because there's a lot of kids who are in poor quality programs and what we know is that there's a lot of research that's showing that you know poor quality early childhood programs really can have pretty significant negative impacts on kind of some of those same kind of factors. Mm -hmm. So let's grow kids.org and everybody get on and sign the pledge because I think the what we really have to show um, the politicians in terms of us discussing this is that it's important to all of us and um, young kids don't sort of drive the funding and the budgets and don't make a lot of noise and so um, the more noise that we can make as professionals I think can have a big effect. And the thing, another plug is uh, sometime soon Chad is going to help screen uh, PBS, the uh, upcoming PBS documentary Raising of America which explores the same um, so, so did you find anything out about preparing and compensating early childhood education teachers? Because that's really near and dear to my heart. Mm -hmm. My daughter teaches Head Start, yeah. and I'm still helping to subsidize her life because she can't make enough money <laughs> right now to you know, pay her bills because she's making such piddly amounts after a four-year education, mm -hmm. which is great. She loves what she does. It's a great program. You know, It will do great things for kids, mm -hmm. but what, how do you attract <laughs> you know, people into that field when there's so many other fields that you can make way more money at, as her father pointed out. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Not one that I focused on in my research, but that's essential to the very basis of what we need, is that we need early, really trained early childhood educators. Um, in terms of what Head Start looks like right now and what preschool programs look like right now, I can tell you that there aren't nearly enough um, trained educators um, at even sort of the, the bachelor's level, let alone further master's level training in early childhood development. Um, and in the best studies uh, that we talked about, the Perry Preschool Program, for example, um, they got great outcomes because uh, probably in large part because they had like master's level trained teachers working with those kids. Um, so we talked a lot about sort of getting the funding for the programs themselves, but I think equally important, if not more so, is finding a way to 
fund the people who want to pursue their passion and actually help um, little kids get to close that achievement gap and get to where they need to be. Do you know what kind of oversight or regulation there is for non-group uh, homes or non-official programs? So just the woman who opens it up and takes in kids. Um, I don't know a lot about that. I can tell you, reading the um, survey about the licensed childhood care centers uh, in New Hampshire, uh, the way that it was conducted is they mailed out a survey to, it looks like, about a 1,000 centers. Um, 600 of them responded back, and they thought that was, that's okay, that's good enough. Um, so I'm curious about what level of oversight myself um, is going on there. I'm sure um, at a level that I haven't looked at and that I don't fully comprehend, but I'm curious about that myself as well and didn't get a chance to talk about it today. You know, you're aware of the standards with your work at the academy and the CDC. So, um, so small sort of home-based daycare, childcare, they still sort of have criteria in terms of the teacher or um, babysitter child ratios, but they don't have a lot of, there's not much more that they suggest besides that. Mm -hmm. The bigger problem, but someone does come and see them and there's yes. sort of more um, rules in terms of like, fire codes and water access and, mm -hmm. you know, and toilets and that kind of stuff. So more about the physical location rather than anything about the training of the people watching the kids. Um, the bigger problem is that there's sort of huge, huge numbers of unlicensed. Mm -hmm. So no one's looking in on them. So, um, so I think we all read last year that unfortunate case of that um, young child who um, died in an unlicensed home daycare. And so a lot of people do that because it's cheaper. So it costs money to apply for a license. So a lot of people will sort of take kids into their home and it you know, might be a distant relative. They'll have too many kids for, for the number of providers. And so I think that the bigger problem is all these unlicensed ones. And if parents will bring kids to those centers because they're much, or, or homes because they're much less expensive. So um, that's the bigger problem. And that there's a lack of, I mean, it's not even just money. It's like there is nowhere to be like, where do you put your kid? And, and um, that, as that, a working parent who had no regular hours, licensed daycares did not yeah. fall within, when my mm -hmm. babies were little, they didn't mm -hmm. fall within a nice, I couldn't take them at eight and pick them up at five every day. There was not a chance that would happen in my life. So. You don't watch the candy as well. No, it's just a me. comment. It's <laughs> near and dear, I think, to anybody in this room who's had children go through mm -hmm. the daycare system. It's exhausting, it's hard. You know, gratefully, Steve and I had enough money to be able to pay for a decent childcare situation, but the people who work in our institution, who work as janitors, who work as housekeepers, who work part-time jobs as hairdressers in the community, that's not a lot. When you're talking about 30% of your income for this mm -hmm. and another 35% for your housing, yeah. that leaves no money for food, electricity, and heat in the winter time. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge problem societally for all of us. Thank you for that. Uh, <clears throat> very nice presentation. Uh, you make a very convincing argument about what needs to be done for the large segment. Mm -hmm. Clinical medicine, though, has a tradition of learning from the exceptional, the unique. I wonder if you came across anything where people looked at, at it from the opposite point of view. Mm -hmm. there, there are people come from backgrounds that would seem to be the same mm -hmm. for people of color, single mothers, and are very successful. Mm -hmm. Does anybody look at those family situations see why they think those individuals succeed? 
I know that there has been research, of, there is some research about that, or at least anecdotal, um, like you're talking about collections of um, trying to figure out what are the common attributes of kids who come from pretty destitute um, circumstances, kids who would get those really high ACE scores if we were talking about them, and go on to do great things and probably supersede a lot of the data that we were talking about here. Um, I didn't come across, I didn't really focus on that for this. Um, I can tell you that in terms of kids who come from those backgrounds versus kids who come from sort of higher income, more resource backgrounds, um, there's some evidence to show that focusing exclusively on the lower income kids and directing all your resource resources towards there may not fix the problem very well. And that um, interacting with some of those kids with more resources actually sort of brings them up, pulls them up a little bit. Um, but that's a really good point and something that I would love to look at in, a, in another talk. Yeah, the biggest, the biggest predictive factor for resilience in that mm -hmm. population is if you had a um, sort of a support person or mm -hmm. um, a strong either parent figure or another community member. Um, and I think that that's why the big push for things like Big Brothers Big Sisters, mm -hmm. for us as physicians to be able, like you, your physician can be that person in your life. But all of those kids who go on to be successful have a person in their life who sort of took an interest in them and supported them um, when things were rough. I think they're really important individual factors, too. You mm -hmm. can't yeah. discount the individual effect of high IQ. So those kids will tend to be higher IQ. And then there's a, a, a personality type that tends to be resilient. Mm -hmm. And it's an adaptable personality type. It's, it's a kid who tends to be flexible and can adapt to different adverse circumstances without getting really anxious and depressed. So those kind of adaptable personality types tend to do better too. It's a style thing. It's something that expresses itself very early on in childhood. And those, those, uh, those uh, what do they call it? They call it uh, style. Or, uh, so those temperament things predict, you know, how well they do in school and how much they make when they grow up. There is a jurisdiction that was not on your map. You don't have the data. We shot New Hampshire and Vermont for the striking differences in child care. But there's a bordering state or province in Quebec where there's universal child care at mm -hmm. a rate that $7 is a day. Yeah. $7 a day for everybody. And we cite the healthcare system often in, in questions of yeah, healthcare yeah. outcomes if she's in Canada versus the US. Mm -hmm. But that's an example of how the other factors that are in play in that society have huge effects on the health outcomes. So, last question. so um, wonderful job, Bridget. Um, it just uh, made me think this this topic fits in nicely with Bernard Dreyer's, uh, who's the incoming American Academy of Pediatric President's focus on childhood poverty. Mm -hmm. And there's one slide in particular in your talk that really popped out at me, and that was the difference in IQ and then math scores by mm -hmm. parent income. Yeah. And um, it makes me think, and I would like to ask what your thoughts are about the what your thoughts are about the relationship between childhood poverty and early childhood development, and then educational programs in early childhood development. And I wonder if, in any of your research, if you came across other emphases or projects or programs focused on childhood poverty that you thought were particularly relevant to childhood development. Yeah. Um, another good point as well. Um, 
not again, not one that I focus on, um, but uh, I think in addition to sort of the early child, the education component, um, there are certainly lots of community resources that families can be hooked up with um, who don't have the resources um, to sort of supplement some of those things. Um, yeah, I think it, it's really important to fund those programs as well or sort of find the ones that are working um, and help there um, and would probably um, do as well in sort of narrowing that achievement gap as well. So you know you've done well when you spend most of your time in the Q&A listening rather than <laughs> 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 so much provocative. <laughs>